So when I came to Seattle and saw that uh, Semele was programmed, I was absolutely delighted because for me, a, a good season program consists of contrast and variety. And for Semele to come so hot on the heels of Tosca is the best way for our audience to appreciate that opera comes in many, many shapes and forms and hues and colors. Um, variety is not only the spice of life, I think it's an essential for us to understand the whole spectrum of this, this wonderful art form. I like a program which looks at many different eras of opera. I like a program which stylistically, uh, by which I mean the presentation style we choose on stage, is always changing. Above all, I like it when the audience enter the theatre and they do not know what's behind the curtain, and ideally don't even know what it's going to sound like as well. Because then we we recapture some of the freshness that the composers would, would have felt in their own times. So as you think, you know opera because you've seen Tosca, suddenly we, we give you something which is a completely different uh, way of delivering exactly the same outcome, a, a highly charged, intense, thought-provoking and moving and emotionally compelling evening in the theatre. Handel has always been very dear to me, and what I love about him is the humanity in the music coupled with great style, elegance and grace. Now, we are doing this piece directly after Tosca, and I cannot think of two pieces more dissimilar, both in terms of musical drive and also in terms of the way they're plotted. Uh, Tosca overwhelms you with the, the force of its emotion, whereas by comparison, Semele seems restrained. But its secrets are just hidden below the surface. And the other thing is that Tosca is an example of, a, of a, an opera which is plotted in a very... Uh, linear fashion. It's cause and effect. If Cavaradossi hadn't happened to see Angelotti um, come out of a chapel at that moment, the rest of the action wouldn't have happened. Whereas Semele has a, a complicated setup and it moves in a more measured way, like, like peeling a, an orange. You, get, you, you go beneath the surface and you, and you get the fruit there and you realize it's more delicious than it looked on the outside. So Semele will be unfamiliar to most of our audiences, so I thought I'd just give a, a quick rundown on the plot. We are on the wedding day of the mortal Semele, who's due to marry a young man called Athamas, a, a prince, but she has fallen in, in love with Jupiter, the king of the gods, and Jupiter loves her. Jupiter is, of course, married to Juno, so we have the settings of a, a love triangle or love quartet made more complex by the fact that Semele's sister loves Athamas, the man she is about to marry. So as we go into the opera, there's a, a complex setup. Uh, what happens is, in the nick of time, Jupiter swoops down in the form of an eagle and plucks Semele from the marriage ceremony up to his higher realm, um, where he installs her in a pleasure palace surrounded, guarded by dragons. So this is where Juno comes into play. She concocts a plot whereby she will uh, obtain a powerful drug which, uh, for her husband, which will inflame his desire, which robs him of his sense of reason and makes him bow to every whim of Semele. 
she also concocts a plan for Semele, whereby, disguising herself as Semele's beloved sister, uh, she gives her a mirror, uh, enhancing her beauty and raising Semele's hopes for immortality. And she knows all along that uh, if Jupiter were to appear to her in his godlike form, Semele would be consumed by flames, which is what happens. And at the end of the tale, out of the ashes of her body, is given birth to the demigod Bacchus, or Dionysius. And so the moral of the tale is really that out of this um, philandering god and this beautiful starlet uh, is given birth to world, the god who represents abandon and unconstrained love. So this is a, is a bawdy tale. Handel moved from the Italian opera, of which he was the master, and which involved extreme and strong storylines, as public taste move away from that art form, he developed the idea of the oratorio. And the vast bulk of his oratorios are to biblical texts. And by biblical, I mean Old Testament texts. So what would have shocked his audiences is the fact that he didn't employ a, an Old Testament text. He employed a bawdy text written by William Congreve, um, which playfully suggested that uh, licentiousness and um, free love was okay. It's part of human nature. So it's not surprising that Handel's audiences found this um, bawdy and a, and a worrying tale in, in an art form of the oratorio, which was normally um, people with Old Testament righteous stories. So it's quite hard to define whether this is a tragedy or a comedy. I, I like to say it's witty. The text um, is knowing. It's, it's saucy. Yes, she dies, but it's almost as if she and Jupiter have the last laugh by giving birth to Bacchus. Uh, they say, okay, our love has gone on. This, this, this child born of, uh, out of wedlock um, is like a little devil who, who encourages free thought uh, in all those who encounter him. So it's hard to describe it specifically in a genre, and I think that is akin also to the English-spoken theatre, that even going back to Shakespeare, it is a mixed genre in the way that European theatre tends to be either written as a tragedy or a comedy. English theatre has always uh, relished this ambiguity, and in dark and serious moments, there's dry or black humour, and vice versa within comedies, there's great seriousness. So I, it, it's almost impossible to say, is it a comedy or is it a tragedy? It's certainly not a tragedy. It's knowing. It's witty and it's knowing. So Handel's music doesn't have immediate dynamism of Puccini or, or Wagner or Verdi. Just as the action doesn't um, propel forward at great pace, so th th it's music which allows you space to reflect so that the chief musical style of a Handel opera is the Da Capo aria, uh, which is a, a specific form. It's an ABA form where the first section takes two lines of text, or sometimes four, but normally two, and gives a very extended iteration of that. The, there's then a, a shorter B section, which takes a further piece of text, which normally adds a different 
tone or colour or thought to that stated originally. And then what happens, the dakafa means from a top, and we go back to the beginning and have a full statement of the A section again, which is coloured in the light of a thought of the B section. So while it is a repeat, it's a repeat in which the singer will be encouraged to ornament and the character, having had its his or her second thought, then reconsiders their first thought. So it's it's a very formal device, and it is the the core musical structure of, of Handelian opera. Coleridge's phrase, the willing suspension of disbelief, was actually coined about 50 years after this uh, this opera was, was written. Um, but, but Coleridge was talking about the way we engage with a work of art. And yes, this stylistically this form maybe seemed quite alien to our to our um, 21st century sensibility but the same applies that if you you sit back and you allow yourself to be consumed by the pace the dr- dramatic pace and the style of writing and the style of character that it may require a piece of a bit more work initially but then one, once one gets it and buys into that uh, more measured tempo then we have an exceedingly rich experience on on hand. Effectively, you follow the emotional journey of the characters, uh, both in a very real and dynamic way, but at the same time, a strong emotion, be it be it love or or, or be it rage, uh, is given full vent. You know, if if we get angry, we tend to get angry for a few moments, whereas here sometimes people are angry for six or seven minutes nonstop. It's like an extended riff on the idea of, of anger. It's music and action which moves like a chess piece from step to step. And at each move, just as, as a chess player thinks about his move before he makes it, you, the audience, are also given that breathing space to assess the overall situation. I think we have to factor in also the performance of the singer themselves. And this was one of the great eras of the singer and the beauty is that the ornamentation um, or improvisation was not written down so what it does what it gives a singer today is the same scope it gave to Handel's singers and that is to to interpret the music to give it their own feel and that personal embellishment is what helps I think the audience communicate with the singer and and also the character singers today understand how wonderfully he writes for the voice he's not writing mechanically even though at first at first hearing the music may seem to follow strict structural rules but there is immense feeling in the writing for the voice and and that's what that it is that depth of emotion which which shines out we're not in a theater where the performer is excluded and we're, we're meant to engage totally with the character themselves. We're in a, an era of writing where the skill of the performer is inextricably linked in to our understanding and our appreciation of character and then by implication, the piece itself. Semele does require fantastic singers. Handel was writing for top singers of his day. Today, it's interesting how as an industry, we've changed the way we view the relationship of the performer to the piece itself. Now, it, back in the in the three tenors era of the early 90s, with a great marketing bandwagon behind them, 
we had a, we had a period not dissimilar to that of of Handel, where CDs were being sold on the back of really quite a small handful of singers. The singer was a prime component in the marketing and promotion of an opera. But today, I think the driver to an audience is the total experience, not the star name. The other interesting feature of um, Semele is the role of Athamas, which we are having sung by a countertenor, a male alto. The taste for the castrato, the um, male sopranos who dominated Handel's earlier Italian uh, opera phase, had died out, probably much to the relief of choir boys around Europe. So this begs the question, why did, um, if the taste of the castrato had gone uh, out of fashion, why did Handel choose to give Athamas, um, to cast him as a, uh, an alto, not say as a tenor. And I presume the point is that he, the emotion which the tenor voice has, he wanted to keep for Jupiter. And so this slightly ethereal, dare one say it, a sexual voice of the countertenor seemed probably more appropriate to uh, a slightly ineffective character who, who has not won the love of Semele. But I'm sure it is designed to feel that when Jupiter comes in, the audience go, oh yes, at last, and that's, that's got the real emotion. I can see why Semele is drawn to him rather than the rather pure and virtuous, uh, if slightly dull, Athamas. Semele, like, like all Handel operas, the, the dramatic tension does require us to put ourselves in a time when people had much, much more uh, leisure time. They, you know, they, they were accepted that going to an opera was um, a leisurely experience. So you had these strong, endless series of strong insights, of strong emotions, which move in an inexorable series from one to the next until the, the conclusion. I think the pieces, the, the things to listen out for, there are one or two very famous arias, um, Where Air You Walk, Jupiter's Aria, um, in Act Two to Semele is one of Handel's best-known tunes. It's, it's, some people uh, are very pleasantly surpri- surprised to discover it comes in this piece. Semele, Myself I Shall Adore, is a, is a beautiful highlight. I love um, Juno's Iris Hints Away, her, her aria where at the beginning of Act 2 when she gets the the, the her, her plot in motion. And by complete contrast, uh, the somnus scene at the beginning of Act 3 leaves me loathsome light, a very slow, lethargic aria of the, <laughs> of the god of sleep.
Um, so it's that variety uh, which I think delights and surprises in this piece. The beauty of approaching a piece involving classical gods is what on earth do they look like? <laughs> and uh, just as in Handel's day, they, although this piece was never actually staged in his day, it was done as a, in a concert form, what was on stage was the 18th century's look or imagination of what a classical god looked like. And in the same way, we have to do that today. So therefore, we go to the heart of what the myth is about and deliver accordingly. So we're in a world which is, I guess you might call it a, um, a modern take on Greek mythology. What the team have done is create sculptural costumes for the mortal scenes and given sensuality and flamboyance to the, to the gods. Because in a sense, that's where the heart of a story lies. The heart of a story lies between the triangle of Jupiter, Semele and Juno. What Semele aspires to is to a world, a glamorous world, if you like, beyond um, her mortal existence. So our costume designs for, for the gods um, are soft, flowing fabrics to, to, to underline the sensuality, whereas the, the costumes of the mortal world are actually quite stiff, they're, they're quite geometric, um, so we get, we get a clear sense of these two worlds, and it's no surprise that Semele wants to get out of the stiff mortal world into this, the sensual and flowing world of, of Jupiter, the palace he has given her. We're also using quite, uh, making quite heavy use of projection, a set which has many different planes. Uh, it's not descriptive in the way, say, that Tosca was, was highly descriptive of place. We're in a a more abstracted place which can change its tone and quality very deftly by the use of, of projection, both on small screens and indeed across the entire picture. Within that, we will have characters actually highlighted within a projection, if you like. So the way it gives us the ability with this new technology to really ch consistently change the, the visual picture uh, very deftly without needing huge scene changes which would interrupt the action and also make something which is very beautiful to look at. And I think when we, when we saw the designs, we were all taken with how beautiful it is. It's a, a modern take, but it's very rich in its, in, in its color palette uh, and all the sensuality of the piece is reflected not only in costume, but also in image as well. And I think what the team have given us is something which is very fluid. So for a musical structure, which, which as I said, moves in a quite measured fashion, we actually have a visual language which allows speed and transition and change within an aria so that we don't need to be constrained by five or six minutes of a dark upper aria because it may well be that the picture changes through that. So our creative team, well, first of all, of course, we have Gary Thorwedo as our conductor who's a Handelian specialist, so we're in the, the finest possible hands there. Our director is Thomas Fulun, who he's a, a child of Seattle Opera. He, he worked here as an assistant director over a few years. He's now the general director of Atlanta Opera, and we were delighted really to, to bring him back to get for this brand new production. And his design team, Erhard Rom, again uh, is a Seattle person. He's cut his teeth on La Boheme with us. Um, interesting, I've seen a couple of his uh, productions since, and this use of projection is very much within his um, 
his visual language at the moment. And our costume de designer making her Seattle Opera debut is uh, Vita Tsaikun. Uh, and she's come up with some fantastic and uh, fantastical uh, costumes, which uh, have a rich palette of, of fabric, of uh, color, and also of different looks. So I think we're in for a, a real visual treat. We're very delighted that Robert Witzel is coming back, who, of course, lit uh, Tales of Hoffman. It may surprise you to learn that choreography also plays a part in this production. We're delighted that Donald Byrd of Spectrum Dance is um, taking charge of our, our dancers, um, which just completes the picture. I think we're in for a very varied and um, enchanting evening.